Dave Jensen is the co-founder and managing partner of Sandlot Partners, an independent private investment firm. He also co-founded Beacon Data, an expert data strategy and implementation company serving the private equity community. Dave enjoys spending time in the outdoors and with his wife, Liz, and their five children. In addition to being an avid golfer, skier, hiker, and movie watcher, Dave is a former professional baseball player. He played for the Kansas City Royals and was a third-round pick. Today, Dave and I talk all about his life journey, starting out with baseball and pivotal lessons he learned playing the game. We talk about how his career path took him to play professional baseball, but then led to medical device sales and a few years later onto Wall Street and now managing his private investment firm. But then we turn from talking about all his success, fame, and fortune to talking about something that so many of us can relate to, something that humanizes all of us because it's no respecter of persons, mental health. For the first time on a public platform, Dave opens up about his struggle with mental health for over 20 years and talks about why he's decided to start talking to people about it. And we just talk about why it's so important to bring these issues out of the darkness of fear and shame and into the light. Finally, we discuss an incredible conference Dave is putting on with his business partner, Casey Baugh, called MW3, and how they plan to raise as much money as possible for Primary Promise a foundation for Primary Children's Hospital in Utah, and the personal development opportunity it will be for anyone attending. Okay, Dave Jensen, it's so nice to have you on the podcast. And I just absolutely love and adore your wife, Lizzie. She's been on the podcast before, and I owe a lot of my growth and progression in sharing my faith to her. And, but the funny thing is, is I actually knew you before I knew her. So yeah, we're old friends. It goes all the way back to our BYU days. Although I don't, were you a student at BYU at the time? Uh, Or just living in pro? Okay. Okay. For anyone who isn't familiar with you, can you give us just a brief overview of who you are and what you do? Hmm. (laughs) Oh man, who am I? I am so many things. I literally to my right have a board that this morning I wrote down <laughs> who am I and some of the things I'm trying to be. And I try to remind myself that I am. I'm a father of five. I have an 11 year old, twin nine year olds. Those are all three girls. I have two little boys that I just put to bed, Zeke and Jack. I am a, a husband to Lizzie. And I'm a co-founder, managing partner of Sandlot Partners, a private investment firm based here in Orem, Utah. I am also a former professional athlete who played pro baseball at the Kansas City Royals. And and just and I am a big fan, big fan of you and what you're doing, your platform and oh, thanks. what you're doing in the world for good. So glad That's to be here. So nice. Thank you. Dave, you had kind of an interesting journey as far as finding what you do professionally and your journey getting there. It wasn't just like a straight shot, right? Yeah, completely. I Baseball for me has always been like a huge part of my life. A lot of kids grow up playing some sports and where I lived just outside of Las Vegas, Nevada and Henderson, Nevada, baseball was like life and it was yeah. a big deal. And Green Valley High School and Little League World Series and six state championships. And like, it was such an honor to get to play baseball for Coach Roger Fairless and to be on that varsity team and 
ranked nationally, four players a year getting drafted professionally. In some ways, I could trace almost uh, like so many good things, endless good things back to what I learned playing for that coach. My sophomore year, there's basically like nobody on the uh, varsity team that's not a senior or a junior. I get called up and I'm ecstatic and I I deliver and I, I perform. I end the year flying high, feeling great. Got a couple more years left. The next year I come, I show up, I got this attitude that I'm going to like a big deal. Mm-hmm. And my coach just had a different way of seeing things, right? And he put me in my place. And then sadly, I kind of started to get into a slump, mm-hmm. uh, which happens in baseball, happens in life. And yeah. man, I, that's so we won state as a sophomore and I was a big part of it. This My junior year, I literally sat on the bench and watched my teammates dogpile. I went and got in there too, but my heart was like, broken. I felt embarrassed. My pride was hurt. And I was like going to quit. Oh, wow. My dad said, Hey, before you quit, like, what if we just go to California and see this one hitting coach, which I did named Scott majors. And like, let's just see maybe if he could work with you, maybe there's something else there. And after that, if you still want to quit, you can quit. Went down there, talked to this guy, Scott, and my goodness, he just got through to me on a mental side, emotional side. And, and like, and also some hitting mechanics and not giving up in that moment for me was such a critical thing Mm. to build some character that I think about, I don't know why, but I think about that experience almost daily now Wow, that I almost gave up and what it meant that then I had to catch up. Right. So then my senior year to get to baseball, to get recruited, it was like your juniors are everything. And I had missed that set on the bench. And but my my coach respected that I'd hustled, even though he and I butted heads. He got me in this league. I went to Arizona. I decided to quit football. And I went and played in this wood bat kind of scout league. Got exposure. My dad, like when I think about my dad and what he did for me, I could tear up. Just he brought me there. He paid for me to be there. He'd come there with me. He's a super busy attorney in Henderson, Nevada, Las Vegas area, and and he'd hustle around on those weekends in Phoenix grabbing pro scouts, grabbing college coaches. Hey, please come watch my son. He's he's on deck. He's up next. And one of those coaches that he brought over was coach named Gary Poland, the head coach of BYU. Mm. He brings him over and like, as it turns out, you know, or maybe his destiny or whatever, like I just smash a double in the gap. And I get recruited to go play baseball at Brigham Young University, which by the way, at the time I had zero interest in that type of living that type of honor code. I was like, so like not into that type of stuff. Yeah. And my parents been there, my family been there. I ended up going to play baseball at BYU. What position did you play? I keep wanting to ask that. So I played first base. Awesome. Yeah, I was a left-hander and a hitter and I uh, played first base. Oh, awesome. Okay, sorry, keep going. So I get there and I had like uh, the worst attitude ever. I... I had a girlfriend at a different school. I kind of felt too cool. Um, It was cold. I was from a desert town. (laughs) I was second guessing or choosing to go there. And then when the baseball season started, everything started to change. I, I, I started to perform and the weather warmed up and I ended up, you know, having an amazing season. I got asked to go to play in this really competitive wood bat league up in uh, funny enough, Alaska. I played for the oh. Fairbanks Gold Panners. Wow. When I got up there, I we ate dinner at like 1 a.m. at a Denny's. And it on the sign, it said, you know how it has like the little letters that you put up? It said, northernmost Denny's in the world. Oh, wow. And 
It was 1 a.m. and it was like bright outside. We're playing catch with a little, like a football, I remember. Some of the guys, all these amazing baseball players from all over the country that were pro prospects. And I, another huge, for me, the pivotal moment was like when I went up there, I, I wasn't really religious, even though my family kind of was. I just was more doing my own thing, a little bit of, I guess, I don't want to call it rebellious, but by the time I got up there, I, I kind of got the, and I'm age 19, decided for myself, like, I need to like figure this stuff out. And in my church, people of my faith, and at that school, a lot of people at that age go serve these volunteer missions, right? Right. And they hang up their cleats or their school books or no girlfriends and all that kind of stuff no work. And they just go do this service thing and share this message uh, about Jesus Christ that's helped them in their life. And so all my buddies were heading out, going to Russia my buddy Adam Russia and Portugal and all just all these places. And here I am like, you know, that's not for me. That's for them. Except to get up to Alaska and I just start seeing things different. And I'm like, all of a sudden my heart is like open to thinking about deeper things for the first time, really. While I was up there, I prayed a lot and I, I started to really think about God and Christ for myself for the first time. And might not surprise those who believe in God and Jesus but once you start doing that stuff, you start to get a connection. And for me, that that I decided to hang up those cleats, those baseball cleats, serve it to your mission. It's funny because my parents didn't think I'd go and I just kept it a secret. I just like didn't tell them, which is kind wow. of fun. And then I got my papers, said, hey, I decided to serve mission. <laughs> here's, <laughs> here's like, you want to open the call with me? And my mom just like lost her mind and wow. cried. And um, it was a special moment. And my teammates thought I was kind of like, wait, what? You were drafted professionally and you're going to like just go hang that up or give that up? And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't totally understand myself, but I feel like this is what I should do. So I'm going to do it. Wow. I got actually this random email a month before I came home from the Cleveland, excuse me, from my dad. And he told me, that the Cleveland Indians had selected me to play baseball professionally for them if I chose to when I got home. And I, anyway, it kind of threw me off for a minute. I was a little distracted, got my head on straight, finished real strong. And then I went home, they worked me out. And I had about nine days between when I got home and the first day of school. And that was the deadline where they'd lose their rights for me to play professionally. And I just kind of felt like it wasn't the right time for me to go do that. Mm -hmm. So I, I was pretty upfront with them. They made me a real nice offer, you know, kind of mid mid set to six figures as a little 21 year old with a, you know, a little collar tan from walking around all day, down about 30 pounds from just walking all day every day. But I went back to school. It was amazing. I, I had like more focus and energy toward life, not just baseball now yeah. due to what I did during that time, just more perspective on life, a little more mature. In some ways, I'm still like a 12-year-old as I'm talking to you right now. I'm up there with my kids. <laughs> my husband is also that way sometimes. So. Yeah. But I charged after things and uh, it started super slow. I think I was hitting like 240 quarter way through the season. Ended up hitting like 411 at, at the end of the season. Picked by the Royals and played professionally for three years. Had a great experience. Got up to the big leagues. Rode around on buses all over the country. I was in the Northwest League with the Spokane Indians. I was in the Midwest League with the Burlington Iowa Bees. I was in the Carolina League with the Wilmington Delaware Blue Rocks, spring training in Phoenix, Arizona. It was like 
amazing. It was hard. It was like so many things. I got paid to play a game, boys game. That was super cool. In the end, I guess it wasn't meant to be to be at the full big league level for huge contracts and full career. But man, I'm like, I learned a ton and I got to live a dream of mine. So I'm super grateful for it. That's so cool. I always wonder specifically with baseball, how the heck do these guys have the stamina to play however many just insane amounts of games in one season? How do they do? How do you do that? I think for me, like I loved the game so much and it fueled me that passion for the game. At some level, to be honest, it, you know, if I'm fully like candid, it, it became less of a game for me and it became more of a business. And I, the stamina piece of it, man, the people at the big league level that, that do perform year after year, day after day, it's incredible. I think there's more psychological strength to the people at that level than people understand. With, just think about it for a second. Like if you fail seven out of 10 times, you, you're like the best there ever, the best out there in baseball. Does that make sense? You're batting 300 and that's really good in baseball, but you but you have to deal with failure a lot. I've so, never thought of it that way. Yeah. That is really interesting. Tell me more about that being a mental game and, and what you learned in baseball with having to, because I think about that all the time when I watch any kind of sports, like how psychological that has to be. So tell me about that and then maybe how that's translated into your life now too. Have you read this book by Angela Duckworth called Grit? No, but it sounds like I should. You really should. She's got TED Talks and they're watched by tens of millions of viewers. And we actually have her coming to speak at our event in a couple of weeks. Oh, that's amazing. There's this concept out there that like America and the world celebrates talent and prodigy. And we like to think that that's just how someone was born. Mm-hmm. And But the reality is like potential is one thing. What you do with it is an entirely different thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that actually is kind of like a quote. I just stole that from Angela Duckworth's book. She also says, if talent counts, effort counts twice. I love that. I learned in baseball to be gritty. Mm. I learned that if you outwork everyone else, and if you're willing to put in the work, outcomes tend to go your way. Opportunities tend to come your way. If you apply hustle and you're fierce and you're determined, and if you fall and you get back up, like things eventually will work out to that person that's determined and that's gritty. In my household, the Jensen's are, we say, grateful, gritty, great. Oh, that's awesome. I also say, chant when I come up in the morning, GGG in 23, GGG in 23, because we're trying to focus on that this year. But anyway, the word grit for me is uh, something that's like deep within. I learned from this amazing man, Roger Fairless, that I stay in touch with to this day and respect the hell out of. That's so cool. Yeah, I was raised by a baseball player. My dad played for Dixie State College at the time, and he definitely taught me just like the exact thing that you're saying. You can outwork anyone. You're not going to, he would tell me, Corinne, you're not that smart. You're not smart enough to not study in school. You're not smart enough to not work really hard. But if you work really hard, you can 
get the best grade in the class. You can do whatever you want. You can outwork anybody. And, you know, he just drilled that into me. And I never took offense to it. I never took it as like, oh, my dad doesn't believe in me. He would just be like, get up and work hard. That's what you're here for. Good for you. That's awesome. I, I really fully believe in that same philosophy. Let's talk about once baseball was over, what did you decide to do then? I was recruited heavily when I was getting ready to graduate from Brigham Young University by to do medical device sales. Okay. So I went out and you know something about this, right, Corinne? My husband did that for 10 years. So okay. Yes. So I didn't do it as long as him. I did it for a couple of years, but there was this company called Striker. And I literally was in scrubs in the operating room, five cases, five surgeries a day, five days a week type of thing building relationships with surgeons, doing minimally invasive procedures on athletes and appendix, appendectomy type removals and using equipment for that. The equipment that they use for that, I supplied and helped them have the visualization they need to do the surgeries that people mm-hmm. needed. And I mean, it was, it was wild. It was, um, I'm not super great with blood. <laughs> <laughs> then and, that's a rough field to be in. Yeah. And it was also like a lot of, if something breaks down, sometimes they got like patients on the table and I'm in there got to be Mr. Johnny on the spot. And it was like drinking from a fire hose and exciting and an adventure. And I, I performed, but it, for me, it was like, okay, build some great sales skills, strategy skills, love the financing part, not loving the blood, not loving the, the fixing equipment stuff. Something that ties back to baseball. Uh, maybe I'll mention. I, <laughs> When I made some money playing pro ball, um, made about five hundred thousand dollars. It's a fascinating little moment. I I gave about half of it to some investment. I sent about half of some investments that my friend that had helped me with baseball, my hitting, my swing, that he had suggested. Right, hmm. and I sent the other half to people that were really qualified in those investments. And what I learned in that moment, sadly, was that. And there's this book called Richest Man in Babylon. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it talks about like, if you want to do well in investing, it's actually pretty simple. Go find somebody that does this expert in their field and have them give them money to do what they're expert at, right? And then back in the day in Babylon, it's like, find the best brick maker, right? Give him money, have him go make more bricks and like share profit with you. But don't give the brick maker money to tailor your clothes, right? Or to make shields. Yeah. And there's this really cool story. It's a timeless book. It's written in the early 1900s. It's as valid today as it was then. I learned the hard way. I got smoked on some investments, but I made the money on some other ones. Mm-hmm. And I was like super intrigued by all that. And so when I decided to go back to business school after Stri- Striker and medical device, I, I knew that finance and investing was something that I was passionate about and would be, be a field that I'd probably love. So that's what I dug into. So I went from, from Striker. In this intense, competitive, scrub-wearing environment with quotas and generating sales to business school and focusing on finance and investments. Super interesting. Not a lot of experience. Wanted to find my way into that career path. I was kind of like shameless because I didn't really have much to street cred. So it was networking, hustling, applying that grit that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. being resourceful, being creative. I mean, just like some shameless thing that I did. I'd, I'd take baseball cards of myself that I had. I'd 
write a thank you letter to someone I'm hoping might give me a job, <laughs> put a baseball card in there so they hopefully remember me and differentiate me from other people. And as silly as that might sound. Did it work? I, it actually, yes, it did work. That's awesome. <laughs> so that got me into a venture capital firm, got some experience there, got on Wall Street with a firm called Morgan Stanley. That launched me. Now all of a sudden I had a little something I could tell people on Wall Street and in New York when they're saying, well, why should I hire you? I could say, well, I've done this and I've done this. And I started to actually know what I was talking about a little bit. <laughs> I got like a ton of experience, but I started to get the itch to do something more entrepreneurial. I, I decided to leave the investment industry and go start a company. Beacon Data was the company that I started. And we basically helped companies with their data strategy, with their analytics company by company. And that I did that for a couple of years. I found it super exciting, but also super hard. I was like, we had some success, but I I didn't feel like I'd really found like my my exact thing. I was still kind of trying to searching to find it. And Corinne, what what ended up happening is because I'd started this company, it brought me to Utah. Mm-hmm. Finally had a chance to go back out west to see family and no longer need to be on Wall Street because I work so long working with those big firms. When we came here, we were still building this company. And then about three months into it, like COVID happened, right? <laughs> and it, of course, like changed everything, right? Yep. For everybody. And there were winners and losers in COVID. And in some ways, I guess you could say COVID was created an opportunity for me that I was uniquely positioned to go capture. Dave, we've talked a little bit here and there offline about your mental health and about how that's something that you feel like you've had a journey with and that it helps people when they have a chance to talk about it or when someone who's feeling like they're the only person in the world who's struggling with something, it helps them to hear that someone else that they look up to has actually been through something similar. So after hearing all of this career success and these amazing things you've done, you've been a professional athlete, you have this wildly successful private equity firm now, I think it would be easy for someone to sit back and be like, wow, like it sounds like a pretty charmed life. It sounds like things have just gone really well for you overall and it hasn't been that hard. It would be easy to assume that. But you kind of mentioned to me that it hasn't always been super easy and there have been struggles. So what can you tell me about that? I think this is something that candidly I'm not I'm not very good at doing is is talking about this. I hope you'll kind of bear with me as I kind of just I've been like 20, 20 years of you know a little bit of <laughs> silent suffering in some ways. Anybody that deals with mental health stuff n- knows how hard it is, how punishing it can be. Antidepressants have been a part of my life for decades now, and I've uh I think I've told about before this last 30 days, I think I told about four people outside of doctors. And it's just something that I've, I don't know, been had a, afraid to tell people, to be honest. Like, and I, I just kind of grind that same grit and some of those things I've learned. I just try to power through 
It's kind of what I've always done, even though I can be stuck in complete sadness and questioning myself and, you know, tearing myself to complete shreds. Some of it is just heavy. I get so nervous to, you know, like bring this type of baggage or heaviness to someone. Some of it's fear of perception of weakness. Some of it's feeling like maybe you're broken. And if you just pretend like you're not like, then you won't be. And people won't ask you about it and talk about it and know about it. But the reality is like, it doesn't really go away. I haven't, I'm still working on trying to find solutions. And I've, in the last 30 days, I've opened up to a number of people for the first time in part, because it's like 20 years of not telling anybody hasn't really, if you do the same thing forever, you've got to get the same results type of thing. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm, a, I'm newer to this stuff, but I'm trying to get better for my family. I'm trying to talk and be more open. Hopefully that'll help both me and maybe those out there that have their own struggles. When it's at its worst, it, when it, that at its worst, it, it completely feels like hell on earth. And I don't, you know, I don't want to get too into the details, but it's, um, it's just real and it's, it's might be invisible to others, but it is so freaking real to the person that's going through that. Anyway, I, I do believe that going through this for me personally, because you ask yourself, why do you go through it? And this feels like maybe unfair or like, what's the purpose? What's the meaning? What's the lesson? I do feel like when you go through stuff like this, you you realize that a lot of people out there have adversity in their life. And we have just maybe, I, I ought to be a little more patient with them. They might be going through something like me, because if I'm going through it, maybe they're going through it. Maybe I don't know about it. So anyway, Crane, I'm, like I said, I'm kind of fumbling through some of this stuff, but it's been, that's been a, a, a big part of my silent journey. It's like a quiet part. We've talked about a lot of success and some things that are kind of fun to talk about. This one's harder. Yeah. But it's, um, it's definitely real. My wife has been a complete saint. She's been with me the whole time. She is like a powerhouse and faithful and loving. She's smart. She's anyway. And, and so I'm grateful for her. And I think she's proud of me for starting to open up to want to talk to people about it, even though it's really scary for me. I, I guess I would say charmed life. I, I, I don't disagree for sure, but I would say like when you get to the top of the mountain in some ways and like you're still in pain or it feels more empty. Mm-hmm. In some ways, that's when you really know you, you, you need some help, yeah. right? Because you kind right. of feel maybe then you'd only if you, if you just get there, then you'd feel re- really good and happy. Yeah. And then when you don't, you kind of realize, okay, like I, I got to think this through a little differently. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'm really proud of you for opening up. And I, I personally feel like when you do that, you take a lot of that darkness, the power of the darkness out, you put it in the light and you stop hiding it. And it somehow magically kind of takes away some of the power. Not that it goes away completely. Not that it's just like a quick fix. But I do think that some of these silent struggles with mental health and that and I've gone through, especially in 2020, I had just absolutely debilitating postpartum depression where to the point where my husband would have to bring me food in bed, which sounds so crazy because I'm typically an 
overworker, super productive, type A, I can get, um, we did a day in the life video today and I watched it back and was like, how did I do 50 things in one day? I'm usually that type of person. So to be so completely, I felt so broken that I couldn't even motivate myself to get out of bed and go downstairs and make myself a sandwich. That was how dysfunctional I was at my peak of postpartum depression. And it taught me a lot. But I also think that at first I was like, oh, I don't want to. I I had taken medication with my first baby. And then that was my fourth. That that happened with our fourth baby. And I was so afraid to, I didn't want to feel numb like I did that first time. I was, I didn't want people to think like, oh, she needs help. There were so many parts of it that I wanted to hide. And as soon as I started talking about it a little bit like what you're talking about, it took a lot of that shame away from feeling like I was so broken. And if people knew, then they would think like, oh, what a disappointment or I don't know. There just were so many right. things that I worried about. And then that you've kind of played in your, your mind. Right? Yeah. And then you bring it out into the light and it's like so many people relate and so many people are there to love and support. And it's typically does not play out at all like your what your brain was telling you was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, probably 17 days ago, maybe 14 days ago, I, for some crazy reason, just hit kind of a low point. And I, and this is also when you know, like, man, maybe there's something else I can, I'm still searching, by the way, this isn't like something I've cracked. I'm like on the hunt for a doctor right now. Like I'm working some angles, some connections, I'm praying about it. But I woke up, I did, I'm pretty, pretty good at exercising virtually every day because that helps a lot with this stuff. Yeah. And it's just good. Generally, I I got some primer meditation going, you know, it's, it's kind of Tony Robbins, gratitude and goals and just like focusing on so many great things and reading some prayer, just like, man. And and like I was even extra this way because of I was wasn't in such a good spot. And that particular day, like I think I cried like 20 times like just in it i'm just like at these cra- this crazy low and that was when i kind of broke and i just like i gotta start telling people like this is unbearable yeah i took it and i didn't like want to i didn't want to wake up like because of the pain you know what i mean and i'm not like it's just if you've been there you kind of you may know it and if you don't maybe it helps empathize or understand it but it's um it's just it's tough it's a tough thing but um so I, I don't know where else to go with it, Corinne, but these are some of the things that I'm kind of on my journey still working through. My wife, my kids are amazing. I have like endless things that I'm grateful for, blessings. I, I do feel like this this experience, especially more recently, it's like stripped away a lot of the walls, a lot of the layers. It's melted away a lot of the things that I used to, the pretenses and the things I cared so much about and it's kind of got me to more just this core of like i see things a little more clearly even though i'm not like got it all figured out and i'm not healthy every single day but i i I seem to have a better perspective and it's put me in this like it's really humbled the hell out of me like i'm freaking because i don't have it figured out i might have a few things i think i have a few things figured out i do not have this figured out and but i'm i'm hopeful and i'm working hard at it and when I do feel good, 
there are moments when Liz will just look at me at the table and I'll just, and I'll be like, just like, what's up? And it'll be like, I just kind of broke through the clouds and I'm not sure how long I'm going to be here. And I'm just like feeling really good. And I just like, I'm trying to soak it in right now. I'm looking at our kids at the dinner table. I'm looking at her. I'm looking at life and where we are. And I'm just like, I'm through the clouds right now. I just like, I'm just going to soak this in and be super present because I don't know how long I'm going to be out of these clouds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think that's a really great thing to do. I think that I was not that good at, and, and I still, I, mental health is still a thing that I try to be hyper aware of where I feel pretty good. I just, I just had a baby three months ago and I feel pretty good this time compared to last time, but I'm always trying to do things kind of like you're talking about where there are things you can do that help. But at the same time, I, it took me a long time with that last bout of really bad postpartum depression to even when, when I had those good moments, it's almost like I would freak out going like, oh my gosh, what if like, this isn't going to last and, and how soon is it going to come back? Do you know what I mean? I would kind of almost worry it away as soon as I started to feel a little bit better. It was like I was afraid of like the bad guy was going to come back out of the closet and and capture me. So I think that's really cool that you're taking those moments and really savoring them and taking that in. I really strongly believe, for me at least, that I had to go through postpartum depression that was so bad that like you're talking about days that you just didn't want to exist anymore. Things that just brought me to such a low where I had to ask for help and be reliant on help that created the type of compassion that I think, at least for me, for the type of person that I am, where sometimes I'll look at other people and think like, kind of like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, like, come on, get up, work hard. That's what we're here for. Like, that's what life's about. And I just didn't have a lot of patience or compassion for people who can't always do that. Or, you know, until I was in a situation where I was so, I was struggling so much with my mental health that seeing somebody at the beach that I knew, I just immediately wanted to like hide because I was in such a bad place mentally that I didn't want to even have to have a conversation with someone, you know? And now that I've been in those places, those really dark, really deep places, it's created such a deep compassion for me, for other people to see them. And kind of like you said, if someone's not at their best or they're struggling or they're not showing up the way you think they should or whatever, to take a step back and think maybe they're going through the type of thing that I've been through. And it just, for me at least, it just changed me and my way of perceiving when other people aren't at their best. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think it's like, I think at the end of the day, like every single one of us has something that's heavy that they're dealing with. And for some it's visible and tangible. And for others, it's maybe a kid that's, it's not them, but it's something in the family, whether it's health or them going off track or, and then sometimes it's this mental health stuff. And a lot lot of times the stuff is invisible. I think we're all kind of Mm -hmm. have an operating system that's, really sadly like fear oriented and fear not being accepted and fear not being perfect and fear not being enough and fear not being loved and like 
set the standard so high that it's it's like impossible to reach and it just sets you up for failure and like i'm just i'm tired i'm just tired i'm tired of living trying to live that way at least internally you know what i mean so yeah. i'm trying to like come more outward with it and like try to accept myself better and accept other people better and also just completely admit that i don't have it all figured out you know what i mean and yeah and there's going to be days when i i need some help and support and i'm super grateful when people are there to, to provide that and i have found that there's so much like i got a business partner and a wife and others that and a brother who checks in with me we for the first time like a year ago he started telling me what what that he goes through this too like he's his mid-40s i'm in my early 40s and only now are we finally talking about this like how many how many years of like connection could we have had and helped each other if we would just started talking about it not you know this past year but like 20 years ago you right. know, if I just if I just trusted that it would be okay and he'd still love me and, he, and, and you know um I just wasn't afraid to say these things to somebody else you know and I think a lot of these silent struggles this is what I'm talking about when you bring them into the light it suddenly is like oh wait there's actually a lot of other people who not only understand but they want help too they want to help you and they they also need help and so I feel like someone like you, Dave, opening up about this and talking about it is going to give a lot of other people permission to feel like they can be more real with you. And they can be, they can look to you as, oh, well, if he has this and I just think the world of him and he's still okay, then I'm still okay. And it doesn't make me not a valid person to have these struggles because Dave Jensen does. And he's still this absolutely amazing person so I think that that's, it that's questionable, but we're no, we're, it, it really <laughs> it helps people to not feel like they're the only ones. And, and I feel like with this, you're right though. I mean, one thing I'd interject is just like, have you ever heard that Michael Phelps has had mental health challenges? I have. Yeah. Like I, a year ago I was watching this. I have, I have this whoop band as one of my things I'm doing to try to track my sleep and be healthier and stuff. And Whoop's got this podcast and interview Michael Phelps. And for 30 minutes, he talks about winning gold medals. And he talks about what he's doing now in retirement and wife and kids and trying to pick up golf. But then he kind of dives into like his struggles with mental health. And I had to actually be admitted into a place. And like, it just completely rocked me. This dude's got his whatever, 29 gold medals. Yeah. Like this dude, this dude, you know what I mean? Um, and, and so like, you know, some of it was like, honestly, since then I've been like, yeah, but that's, he's got 29 gold medals. If I had 29 gold medals, I'd say it, but I don't have 29 gold medals. You know what I mean? But I'm also, I'm just, I'm fatigued, but I'm also inspired by him. And I just said, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to be, I'm just trying to be real about it. And hopefully, um, because candidly, I just, I need support and I need some accountability sometimes, but also hopefully so other people can realize that we're all, we're all out there struggling. You know what I mean? We all kind of need each other. Yeah. I really hope that I think we're getting so much better as a society. And I hope that when my kids are older and if they ever come across something like this, that hopefully we've gotten to the point in our world where it's just as commonly talked about as 
having asthma or having yeah. a bee yeah. allergy or whatever, you know, because that's all it is. It's like we all have different chemical makeups. There's some people that are going to yeah. get stung by a bee and need an EpiPen or they're going to die. And then there's other people right. who like it stings for a minute and they walk away. It's so similar with mental health. We just all have such different makeups and hopefully we can take the shame out of this by talking about it more and yeah. making people feel like if they have to have their version of an EpiPen, it's not something to be embarrassed about. It's just a different form of you need your body needs help and that's okay. So I think it's really, really cool that you're opening up about this and you, that you'll give a lot of people permission to do the same thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's just switch gears for a minute because I'm really excited. I'm going to come to Utah. This is actually so funny. We're going to Utah for a week for spring break. We're going to turn right around after we come home with our kids and go back to Utah for a for conference this. that you and Casey are putting on oh, called MW3. What a sweetheart you are. So we're, we're so excited. Yeah. Oh, how fun. And not because Provo, Utah is at the top of our destination list, <laughs> especially with all yeah. the snow that you guys have right now, but because of all of the incredible people that you're gathering for this conference. Yeah. No, we, we feel like super honored and like humbled and super responsible that this ends up being what we think it's going to be, which is a really unique conference. It's called MW3, the Wealth and Mindset Conference. What is MW3? It's really an acronym for mastery of three W's, right? Wealth, wisdom, and wellness. Right? Mm. And we've, we've talked about some of those things on this, this call today, right? Building financial wealth gives us freedom, helps us live our dreams. Becoming economically self-reliant is one of the most like noble things that we can do, the most important things that we can do. And empowering others to do so is so important. And it gives us allows us to give more, to be more generous, to spend more time with people that are important to us. I'm certainly guilty of just focusing on that for so many years and yeah. being one-dimensional. And so what I've learned in the more recent years, and in some ways I'm still a beginner at this, and this conference is for me really as much as for anybody else, is that like caring about wellness, about health, emotional, physical, exercise, thinking and cultivating meaning and important relationships, aligning your time, your energy resources with your actual values. Those things take work and, and there's systems for it. There's best practices. And there's some people out there that are doing a pretty darn good job at it, but they should be heard. We should listen to them more. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's get together. Let's think about abundance and, and what that means and how we can live more abundantly and what kind of joy that can bring us. And Let's compare notes. We're gonna have a thousand people come together at this conference. It's I think it's gonna be epic. We're gonna we're gonna have a great time. We have professional athletes and we have coaches and we have thought leaders and authors and influencers and women. We have men. We we have a cause that we're rallying around. So this this thing's really about primary promise, which is this like Intermountain Health Care's founded charitable foundation that supports the primary children's hospital here locally, the new one they're gonna build and this innovative healthcare that's changing lives. We're gonna talk a lot about that. We're gonna help people better understand what that is, give them a chance to donate. All the profits from this event will go to Primary Promise. We're presenting it, our firm is, and putting it together. But the whole idea is just to like 
add value to the community, add value to those that want to come, spread awareness, and leave inspired and empowered to go be our best selves and live life a little more holistically. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's so cool. I'm super, super excited to come. And the lineup of speakers is absolutely out of this world. And anything that you and Casey are doing is going to be top notch. So if people are interested in that, where can they find more information on that? We have about, honestly, we're about out of tickets. We have a thousand capacity. I'm not sure what the fire department's going to do with us. We're, we're about to kind of hit the threshold, but the tickets and the conference, you can look and learn more about it at mw-3.com, mw-3.com. And the keynotes, and the lineup and what it's about and why we're doing it and the time and the place. It's in Provo, Utah at the Utah Valley Convention Center, 17th and 18th of April. Come, you know, be open-minded that maybe there's something that you might pick up that you might learn. And I, I, you know, what I can promise is that this conference will add a ton of value to your life. I think it can really change your life. If you're looking to like transform and to be better, to align, to learn, like, I, I don't know. I think it's the conference that we've never had. And we just, you know, decided, hey, maybe we should, somebody, somebody ought to do this. So yeah. we're doing it. I can't wait. Okay, one last question for you, Dave. If there's yeah. one message that you want people to remember from this podcast episode, what do you want that one message to be? Oh, man. I didn't see that one coming, Corinne. There's a message. Man, I mean, there's so many things that we've talked about. You know, when I look at where I am right now, I think, oh, how do I simplify this? I think if if we're boiling it all down, it's just like trying i'm I'm trying to have more love for myself and more love for other people, plain and simple. I'm trying to feel it personally. I'm trying to give it to others, starting right here in my house and in my house tonight. And I'm trying to give it to the stranger that I meet tomorrow in some way, and I'm gonna fail at it probably more times than not. But I'm trying to like, heal. I'm trying to help others heal. There's actually this beautiful book called Law of Love by Steve Young. He's going to talk about it for 60 minutes at our conference. And it's changed my life. It's completely changed my life. And I've recommended it to a gazillion people. It's an easy read. And I think he's just nailed how to live the gospel of Jesus Christ in a practical way. doesn't mean it's easy in a higher way, in a way that's, but it's all just kind of feeds back into love. He's done endless things for his legacy, but he recently said when asked about like, what do you want your legacy to be? He said, I just, this is it, the law of love, if, if this could be my legacy. And so I, I kind of feel the same way. If, if me and if you, Corinne, we can like find a way to just love ourselves more and accept and then like spread that and be open-minded on where that should flow and abundant with it and not be transactional with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which we're going to do sometimes. And that's okay, I think. We just kind of every day just try to keep working on this and pray for it and then let it flow and don't beat ourselves up when we're not perfectly obedient. You know what I mean? And don't do everything on our task list. Just freaking like accept and love. And anyway, so that's what I'm working on. So that's kind of the message to me. And I think everybody in some ways, I think we all need it. We all feel it in our hearts. And so that's it. So I love it. 
And that book is on my nightstand and I'm going to read it before I come to the conference. But anyway, thank you so much, Dave, for everything that you offered tonight, all the things that you shared. It was really very inspirational and and helpful for me. And I know it will be for a lot of other people too. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple Podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode.